This is Citations Needed with Nima Shirazi and Adam Johnson. Welcome to Citations Needed, a podcast on the media, power, PR, and the history of bullshit. I am Nima Shirazi. I'm Adam Johnson. You can follow the show on Twitter at Citations Pod, Facebook, Citations Needed, and become a supporter of our work through patreon.com slash citations needed podcast. All your support through Patreon is so incredibly appreciated as we are 100% listener funded. We don't read ad copy. We don't have commercials. We don't have corporate sponsors or anything like that. We are supported and sustained by listeners like you. Yeah, so if you could go to uh, Patreon, look up Citations Needed and subscribe to us there, we'd be extremely, extremely grateful. This is actually our final full-length episode of 2022. It's been a hell of a year. We are in the middle of our sixth season of Citations Needed. We've done over 170 full-length episodes, nearly 200 news briefs. We've been at this for a while, and we are wrapping up yet another calendar year and just really cannot thank all of our listeners enough. You all listening right now uh, cannot thank you enough for your ongoing support of Citations Needed. And especially this holiday time fills me with so much cheer and goodwill that I will extend yet more gratitude to you all. Yes, uh, we're very grateful for the support we've had this year. And we're very much looking forward to our second semester at the beginning of next year, second half of the sixth season. We're still going strong. We have a bunch of great episodes lined up. And so we're really excited for 2023. We plan on jumping the shark in 2028, (laughs) so uh, for now, we're still cooking and booking. (laughs) The city has had 125 daily interactions, New York City Mayor Eric Adams tells the Daily News. We're working to solve the homelessness crisis with innovative mental health interventions, San Francisco Mayor London Breed tells reporters. The city needs to clean up homeless encampments, Countless city officials tell us. Everywhere we turn, our elected, largely Democratic governors and mayors are talking about, quote, solving the homelessness crisis, end quote, without specifying what exactly their plans entail. Saying that elected officials plan on harassing and displacing the homeless population until they're either incarcerated or leave the city altogether sounds unseemly and inhumane. But this, minus the occasional and insufficient attempts to offer public and affordable housing, is more or less the strategy of most big cities. Send in police to, quote, sweep up, unquote, encampments, enforce low-level drug offenses, and ticket the unhoused for loitering and camping. But saying this is the plan sounds mean and gross. So over the past couple years, as America's housing crisis has grown more acute and the end of COVID-era tenant protections unceremoniously sunsets, a cottage industry of pleasant-sounding euphemisms has emerged to sell police-led homelessness crackdowns to squeamish liberals. The right wing, historically, is fairly upfront with its bootstrap austerity logic and rhetoric. And they, for the most part, don't run major cities where the homelessness crisis manifests. Liberals and progressives, short on resources and political incentive to actually address the underlying issues affecting their cities, need to sell the same played-out discredited carceral attempts at removing visible poverty, but unlike their Republican counterparts, don't do so in such explicit anti-poor terms. So a PR regime emerges to paper over these glaring contradictions, leading to heretofore unseen levels of bullshittery. Today, we're going to examine four popular euphemisms employed by blue city leaders to sell the same old carceral playbook to their wary, self-identifying progressive constituents, discuss how these programs do little to address the central issues of a lack of affordable and free housing, and talk about how city leaders, 
with wildly insufficient federal support for housing, foaming anti-homeless media, and suffering from institutional political cowardice, are left with little more than meaningless, quote, emergency declarations, tough guy take charge press conferences, and nice sounding rehashes of the same failed cruel policies of austerity and precarity. Later on the show, we'll be joined by Hannah Khan, a criminal defense attorney, litigator, and now an advisor at the Wren Collective. She previously served as a staff attorney for the Neighborhood Defender Service of Harlem. Police are trained to look for crime. Police are armed. They're trained to use force. They are trained to ensure compliance. And they are grossly unprepared to deal with people who are struggling in severe mental health crisis. And the data shows that police contact actually escalates issues where someone is experiencing a crisis. Just their presence escalates a situation because they are uniformed, they're armed, it's a hostile situation. So for this very special Christmas-themed episode about homelessness, to sort of keep with the Dickensian theme, don't Google his opinions on the Civil War, by the way, but his sort of more bleeding heart version of domestic politics of Victorian England, Victorian Britain, rather, we did an episode on homelessness about four years ago, a two-parter. This is the spiritual sequel to that, as we have a tendency to say. And that dealt mostly with the way local news and right-wing media demagogue the homeless. But one thing we haven't really talked about is the way in which liberal and progressive messaging serves many of the same ends, but in a way that's a little bit more nice. And this is kind of right when citations needed wheelhouse. I've written about this about three times for my Substack, so we've been wanting to do this for some time. And because it's the holiday season, we wanted to sort of do it now because we do think it's relevant to the kind of themes that we typically see in our holiday schlock, which is to say humanity, but humanity packaging without really uh, the good results. Are there no prisons? Are there no workhouses? Exactly. And so the basic premise of this episode we're going to assert, which is a, we don't get too ideological on the show or sort of overtly ideological in terms of, of theory, but this is kind of a Marxist 101 premise that we're going to, that we operate under, and you can sort of agree with it or disagree with it if you wish. But basically, a certain level of destitution and poverty, we have mentioned this on the show before, is necessary for our system to work in terms of low wages and massive mm -hmm. inequality. Precarity is built into capitalism. Right. This is, again, hippies going to tell you what the real crime is. But in this case, we have a really, really good A-B testing for this in the last two, three years, which we didn't really have previously. Or we had in, in terms we had to kind of infer more or look at more far back historical examples where when the federal government was providing enhanced unemployment during the 2020 and 2021 until it sunset in August and September of 2021, there was quite explicit arguments from center and right wing economists and even some liberal economists that providing people with wages that were above the minimum wage to stay home mm -hmm. was what was driving up worker power what was driving up wages for workers. Now they'll say it's what led to inflation, but of course we know that's not true because countries even without that had inflation. Right, and because inflation was primarily driven by corporate price gouging. That too, uh, because of the freakish nature and one-off nature of this once in hundred year pandemic, the social arrangement was modified such that we paid people to stay home and poverty reduced and child poverty reduced quite a bit, especially when you combine it with the child tax credit of early 2021. So those aggressively lobbying to get rid of enhanced unemployment and the stimulus payments and the child tax credit were quite explicit that we needed to do this because frankly, people were not, there was not enough poor people. That's right. There wasn't enough precarity and there wasn't there enough- There wasn't enough suffering. There, well, well, not only is there not, because to, to have 
the credible threat of suffering to suppress wages, you have to have some level of actual fixed suffering. Mm -hmm. And that if you have too many people who are living comfortably, again, if you knew anyone, as I'm sure a lot of our listeners did, who got the UI, who were previously working in retail jobs, restaurant jobs, low-wage jobs, whether they were waiters or doulas, you know that their life was like meaningfully improved. You would see them and they'd say, oh, it's great. I'm actually taking classes. I'm reading this book I've always wanted to read. Mm -hmm. Spending more time with my family. I've spent more time with my fucking children, God forbid. And this was not okay. The social arrangement was not okay. It was not okay quite explicitly. They used somewhat euphemistic terms. People like Lindsey Graham didn't even bother. They're like, oh, there's not enough poor people. And so the fundamental premise we're going to assert for this episode, which I think is pretty uncontestable, is that the goal of liberalism as an institution is to preserve the fundamental outlines of society. It's to preserve capitalism and preserve the arrangement, but to make it more palatable. And liberalism is far more preferable to fascism and hard right austerity because you'd rather get beaten with a cane mm -hmm. 10 times versus 50 times, but you're still going to get beat with a cane. And that the point of liberalism and how it handles poverty is to ameliorate the suffering and to sort of make it less painful. Yeah. And so much of what we're going to talk about in terms of euphemisms for supporting a carceral response to houselessness does have liberal components. There are efforts to spend money on housing. But what we're going to argue is that those are largely incidental and not nearly sufficient. And in many ways, and this is going to sound like an excuse, but it's not really something local leaders can do a lot about because they can't deficit spend. This is actually fundamentally a federal failure in terms of the actual monies it would take to house people who need to be housed. So in the absence of that money, in the absence of the ability to spend $100 billion or whatever number that progressive economists have come up with to actually house people and to build enough public housing fast enough, whatever that number is, they have to come up with half-baked supply slide solutions in terms of providing some modicum of housing. But really what they need to do is just do the same old thing you did, which we've done throughout history of the last few hundred years, which is to basically criminalize poverty and to harass homeless people until they either leave a specific jurisdiction or leave wealthy areas or tourist focused areas through these so-called sweeps, these so-called anti-camping laws, and then launder them through the carceral system in various capacities, sometimes straight up prison and jail, sometimes these kind of diversion programs, which are preferable, but again, sort of the same thing, or the mental health institutions, which they're out of in 72 hours, and then they just go back to the streets. But there's never any actual permanent fixed solution because they don't A, have the resources for that, B, or the political conviction for that. There's also the issue, Adam, of the deserving and the undeserving poor. So there are those people who in terms of the way our system is set up, should, quote unquote, should be working, right? That this is why UI is such a danger to this idea. The idea that if you can work, you should be working, right? And if you can't, then maybe there are some means of like charity. But if there is visible poverty that has to be swept away, pushed under the rug, out of sight, out of mind, and that is how our society is run. There's this threat of destitution. And if you reach a certain level, if you are unfit to be seen on the streets by our polite liberal society, you must be removed while those who can work must, of course, work. And it gets back to this Dickensian idea. But even before Victoria-era workhouses and uh, debtors' prisons, things like that, we can go back even a few more hundred years, Adam, to see the real advent of these anti-vagrancy acts and how they have permeated through our society. So historian Peter Higginbotham has written this, quote, in the 14th century, in the aftermath of the Black Death, 1348 to 49, 
When labor was in short supply and wages were rising steeply, several acts were passed aimed at forcing all able-bodied men to work and keeping wages at their old levels. These measures led to laborers roaming around the country looking for areas where the wages were high and where the labor laws were not too strictly enforced. Some also took to begging under the pretense of being ill or crippled. In 1349, the Ordinance of Laborers prohibited private individuals from giving relief to able-bodied beggars. In 1388, the Statute of Cambridge introduced regulations restricting the movements of all laborers and beggars. Laborers wishing to move out of their own county hundred needed a letter of authority from the, quote, good man of the hundred, end quote, that is, the local justice of the peace, or risked being put in the stocks. A century later, in 1494, the Vagabonds and Beggars Act determined that, quote, vagabonds, idle and suspected persons shall be set in the stocks for three days and three nights and have none other sustenance but bread and water and then shall be put out of town. Every beggar suitable to work shall resort to the hundred where he last dwelled, is best known or was born, and there remain upon the pain aforesaid, end quote. This was followed by the statute of legal settlement in 1547 that said that a sturdy beggar could be whipped and branded through the right ear with a hot iron. This was followed by other acts like the statute of legal settlement in 1547, which issued punishment for uh, vagrancy. The 1597 act for the repression of vagrancy that required anyone, quote, deemed to be a rogue, vagabond, or sturdy beggar who was found begging could be stripped naked from the middle upwards and openly whipped until his or her body be bloody and then pass to his or her birthplace or last residence, end quote. So, you know, things like this, in addition to the Settlement Act of 1662, basically made vagrancy and wandering and begging a crime. Criminalized vagrancy, criminalized itinerancy, um, to the point where corporal punishment and then banishment would follow. Now, England transformed rapidly as the 18th century dawned and poor relief changed. At the beginning of the 18th century, then, England transformed rapidly. Its population skyrocketed, people migrated in huge numbers to cities. London, for instance, exploded 500% in population in two centuries, becoming the first European city to reach a million people by the year 1800. In this mass influx, cities like London experienced widespread poverty. And in turn, the cities had to come up with ways for so-called relief. Many responded by creating workhouses from the 1720s onward. Now, workhouses, in theory, promised to solve a number of problems. They could tap into an existing labor pool. They could put people to work. They could be funded themselves by the labor produced. They could therefore then enable tax cuts to more wealthy people. And of course, in the most Protestant tradition, it could instill a work ethic for those that it housed who were assumed to be there because they, you know, drank too much or they were unruly or they lived immoral lives, right? And so the poor would not get a free ride to salvation. No, they would be disciplined and they would also allow the state to turn a profit. Yeah. And what's important to understand for the purposes of this episode also is that the creation of poorhouses and the distinction between the deserved and undeserved poor 
was primarily a liberal invention. It was not done by the Tories. It was done by the Whigs. It was sort of broadly speaking, it's a little reductionist, but broadly speaking, the more liberal party. Peter Ackroyd in his book, Dominion, which was a history of England during the Victorian era, wrote, quote, so a new system of poor relief was introduced at the time with the purpose of distinguishing between those who would not work and those who could not work. The old poor law was maintained by the people of the local parish, e.g. the church, who best knew the circumstances of those who claimed relief. It had been operating since the beginning of the 17th century, but was now regarded by the new breed of bureaucrats as outmoded and outworn. The new poor law was proposed in 1834 as a model of organization and efficiency. It was the Benthamite way. The old parishes were grouped into, quote, unions, unquote, which under supervision of three poor law commissioners in Whitehall controlled the novel institutions of, quote, workhouses, unquote, as instruments of containment and control. The new policy of central determination and local administration became the key contribution of the 19th century to social policy. He would go on to write, the workhouses were hated by the people and particularly by the poor. They were agents of oppression and were known as Bastilles. To be obliged to enter a workhouse was in effect to go to a prison. The workhouse was also the child of the reformed parliament. No previous parliament could have created anything so uniform and bureaucratic. It needed Whigs, the reformers, the dogmatists, and the Benthamites to bring it to fruition. It should also be remembered that the new poor law was proposed and passed by the Whigs rather than the Tories. Many Tories supported it, of course, but there was a brand of radical Tories who denounced it as an enemy of the people. The suspicion of such institutions soon ran very deep and accounts in part for the reluctance of parents to send their children into new schools, which were often built in the dreary gray stone of workhouses. Prime Minister Benjamin Israeli knew it as the new brutalitarianism. The image of dour severity and no less harsh sanctimony endured for many decades as an example of what came to be known as Victorianism. It sprang out of high ambition and solid principle, but as soon as the light shone upon it, it became oppressive and disheartening. End quote. And so from the beginning, you have this idea that the institutionalization and the systemification of a poor underclass mm-hmm. with this very important distinction of the kind of deserved and undeserved and the idea that we cannot under any circumstances allow an able-bodied person to be idle or people we perceive to be able-bodied to be idle, that that was the sort of great sin and that everyone who could work had to work regardless of how, if that was basically a slave wage or poverty wage, and that that fundamental arrangement had to be maintained to keep labor markets liquid and to keep people working. You could not have a situation where the state, even if it could afford it, which you could even argue in the early mid to 19th century, the British state could have probably afforded it, even if you can afford to take all the poor and feed them in housing, the second you do that, you create a moral hazard that gives the workers one notch above them way too much temptation to just sit home and gives them way too much bargaining power as a union. Because if a worker can at any point, if their alternative to getting sexually harassed at fucking Applebee's or being forced into working a triple shift as a ditch digger, if their alternative is to go live somewhere with safety and security and comfort, then that makes them not as disciplined and not as easily disciplinable. And so this liberal impulse to sort of maintain this system in a more humane way is the central function of liberalism in a wildly unequal capitalist state. This also has to do with the removal of unwanted, right, from respectable society. Catherine Cox and Hillary Marland in a paper called A Burden on the County, Madness, Institutions of Confinement, and the Irish patient in Victorian Lancashire wrote this, quote, in the final three decades of the 19th century, statistics produced by the lunacy commissioners demonstrated an alarming increase in the number of pauper lunatics confined in lunatic asylums and workhouses in England and Wales, end quote. They go on to state this about the creation of so many more asylums for the mentally ill 
at the time. Quote, the cost of supporting Irish paupers in receipt of outdoor and indoor relief continued to drain the resources of the Lancashire Poor Law Unions long after the famine, although this varied between unions. In February 1852, the editors of the Preston Guardian, which was particularly vociferous in its depiction of the Irish problem, described how, quote, the miserable and demoralized crowds sent from Ireland into Liverpool partly helped to increase the Irish colonies already too extensively rooted here. The Irish tramping through that district or casually employed in potato getting give it a character from which it would otherwise be free, end quote. Yeah, and so here we have this idea of poor people are poor because of moral failings. And the proxies we use for moral failings are mental illness and drug addiction. Mm -hmm. That they are not poor because we have to have, that the system requires a certain percentage of people to be destitute. They are poor because they have some, you know, maybe they don't call it a moral failing, some sort of deficiency. Right. It's not to say there aren't issues of, of substance use and mental health among the unhoused, of course, but that is not the reason they're unhoused. Their mental illness is not why they're unhoused. They were left to slip through the cracks because we have a system that doesn't support people with those issues. Right. This very thing was actually depicted in Charles Dickens' A Christmas Carol, and this being our holiday episode, our Christmas episode, I feel it's necessary that we recount this scene where a couple people visit Ebenezer Scrooge at his office on Christmas Eve to ask for a donation to help the poor. So let's actually listen to this part of A Christmas Carol from the 1951 version of the Scrooge story with Scrooge played by Alistair Sim. At this festive season of the year, Mr. Scrooge, it is more than usually desirable that some slight provision be made for the poor and destitute. Many thousands are in want, sir, in need of common necessaries. Hundreds of thousands are in want of common comforts, sir. Are there no prisons? Plenty of prisons. And the workhouses, are they still in operation? They are, though I wish with all my heart they were not. I was afraid from what you said at first that something had occurred to stop them in their useful course. Under the impression these places can scarcely furnish Christmas cheer for the mind and body of the multitude, a few of us have endeavoured to form a fund for the poor, to buy them food and drink and means of warmth. What can I put you down for, sir? Nothing. Uh, you wish to be anonymous. I wish to be left alone. Since you ask me what I wish, gentlemen, that is my answer. I help to support the institutions I mentioned. They cost enough. And those who are badly off must go there. Many can't go there. And many would rather die. If they'd rather die, they'd better do it and decrease the surplus population. Good afternoon, gentlemen. Now, cut to modern day. Now that we've given you uh, that primer on the history of Anglo-American liberal guilt massaging, we're going to go into sort of what we consider the contemporary examples of euphemisms that liberal politicians use to sell the same old carceral playbook to make themselves feel better. So this takes us to the modern day. And by modern day, I mean actually just a few weeks ago. On November 29th, 2022, New York City Mayor Eric Adams announced a new mental health policy for New York. And in his announcement came a lot of the same tropes that we hear again and again about interventions, about helping those that can't help themselves. And this time around, the policy allows police and other city officials to involuntarily hospitalize those they deem mentally ill. This is how he announced the plan. 
Good morning, New York City. I want to talk to you about a crisis we see all around us. People with severe and untreated mental illness who live out in the open, on the streets, in our subways, in, in danger, and, and in need. We see them every day, and our city workers are familiar with their stories. The man standing all day on the street across from the building he was evicted from 25 years ago, waiting to be let in. The shadow boxer on the street corner in Midtown, mumbling to himself as he jabs at an invisible adversary. The unresponsive man unable to get off the train at the end of the line without his assistance from our mobile crisis team. These New Yorkers and hundreds of others like them are in urgent need of treatment, yet often refuse it when offered. The very nature of their illnesses keeps them from realizing they need intervention and support. Without that intervention, they remain lost and isolated from society, tormented by delusions and disordered thinking. They cycle in and out of hospitals and jails. But New Yorkers rightly expect our city to help them, and help them, we will. He is conflating two different things, which is someone having an apparent public acute mental health issue that makes them violent, which everyone can agree that if someone is having being violent and, or being erratic in public, that there should be some intervention, ideally by a medical health professional, not the police, but we'll say somebody, right? He's saying that if you display any, based on the observations of an NYPD officer, that if you sort of look vaguely mentally unwell. And by the way, historically, the Adams administration has argued that living in the subway was per se evidence of mental deficiency. You are effectively making poverty evidence of mental illness. You are using the slippery slope that, again, intuitively people say, oh yeah, if some guy's crazy, it makes sense, you don't have street. Uh, but two things, number one, that definition is now expanded to be totally meaningless where random NYPD officers can now just judge if they feel like someone's mentally unwell, even if they're not displaying violent behavior. And two, and more importantly, is that to be clear, these people are not actually getting mental health that's long-term or sustainable mental health, right? If someone's having, let's say, some kind of schizophrenic episode that is, let's say, drug-induced or whatever, you can calm that person down and get them sober and they will have some point of rationality afterwards, right? No, it may not last, but that is something that is possible. You kind of put out the fire at the time. And that's the impression they want to make. But you talk to anyone, including our guest, by the way, that is not what's happening in New York because they're just getting cycled through a system for two to three days when there's not nearly enough beds in, the, in these mental health institutions. And then they're out of the hospital in a couple of days because you can't just, there's not the resources or funding to actually give people the treatment they need. So the key is the mayor's office and a lot of these big city mayors, we're going to talk a lot about Adams because it's New York City and it's the biggest city in the country, but other mayors do do this, is that it's like a kid trying to convince their parents they're eating their vegetables by just kind of moving it around the plate. It's just displacement from the sweeps to these mental health lockups. What you never hear really reporters ask or a lot of anyone in the public ask, with the exception of some activists, is what happens after they're arrested? What happens after they're detained? Because they don't want you to ask that question because the reality is they're just back on the streets in a couple of days because the goal is to harass and arrest them until they just move to a different city. And so one of the ways they do this is they talk about this very generic term, interactions mm -hmm. or mental health interventions. And it sort of sounds good, which is, it sounds reasonable. The New York Daily News reported that, uh, according to the Adams administration, that on their first day of their new subway policy last March, which is when they chose 
a freezing cold weather day in, in early March to have a new policy of basically rounding up people they perceive as being unwell or any really poor people in the subway and kicking them out of the subway where they can have warmth back up to the streets where they don't have warmth. They told reporters they had, quote, 125 daily interactions, which again really sounds good. And it sounds much better than 125 arrests or 125 involuntary commitments or 125 tickets for camping or loitering or other other kind of petty crimes or oftentimes drugs. You know, oftentimes they'll find drugs on people and then they book them in jail for drugs because drugs are still illegal, despite what you may have heard. Officer-involved intervention. And if you look at these homeless outreach teams in New York City, and this is true in a lot of other cities, Los Angeles has a very iconic picture of five heavily armed cops. And the chyron at the bottom reads uh, homelessness outreach team. And that's pretty much what it is in, in New York City. It's a bunch of cops flanked by a couple social workers who are actually somewhat trained. And the goal is to just get in the fuck out the way. And everybody knows that, which is what makes these euphemisms so interesting to dissect. So I asked the Daily News, I said, well, did the Adams office say what interaction is? And of course they didn't. Because really what it is, it's police harassing people to leave public areas, tourist areas, wealthy areas. Greg G. Smith, a reporter for The City, wrote, quote, State officials of mental health guidelines released shortly after the mayor's news conference state that a person on a train who appears to be mentally ill can be removed to a hospital for observation if the person, quote, displays an inability to meet basic living needs, even when there is no recent dangerous act. So based on the criteria from last spring, there is debate about whether or not this is still the current criteria that is still being litigated because they're being very vague even as of late. That basically being poor is per se, or being destitute is per se evidence of mental disability. And obviously that has pretty Orwellian implications in terms of what the state authority, but we're not even going to be precious civil libertarians about this. The point is they need to come up with new ways of just getting visible poverty out of the way of the quote unquote average New Yorker. And one of the ways you do that is you pathologize poverty, that people are poor because of a mental health issue, not because of failure of society to provide for them. And then in turn, you criminalize mental illness and the act of being homeless. Correct. Because the goal is to just harass people until they leave or they end up incarcerated. The goal is to get them out of the way. Another way that oftentimes liberal officials will speak about these anti-homelessness policies is by greenwashing. That is, using police to remove these unwanted populations from the streets. Why not out of charity necessarily, but to save the environment? So one example... The California Sierra Club somewhat controversially came out in support of banning homeless encampments earlier this year in Sacramento. This from CBS News on April 25th, 2022, under the headline, Environmental Nonprofit Calls for Cleanup of Homeless Along American River Parkway as Fire Season Approaches. Quote, there is a new call to clear out the homeless to prevent fires along the American River Parkway. According to the environmental nonprofit, the Sierra Club, the two issues go hand in hand. And now it's calling on the city and county to take some bold steps and fast. The Sierra Club says fires have tripled along the parkway in the last three years. And with fire season knocking on our door, they want the homeless moved out. Quote, we want more urgency in getting people off the river, end quote, said Barbara Leary, chairperson of the nonprofit Sacramento chapter. Leary added, quote, I'm also afraid we're going to see more people dying along the river, end quote. The environmental nonprofit is behind a new report that shows the parkway saw 156 fires last year. That is three times the number it saw in 2019. Allegedly. In Utah, Democratic electeds used the protecting environment to evict hundreds of people from a homeless camp, according to a Fox article 
in uh, Salt Lake City, Utah. Cleanup underway in homeless camp near Utah State Capitol, also from April of 2022. The article is quoting Salt Lake County Health Department spokesperson Nicholas Rupp. He said, quote, this day, this kind of work isn't anybody's favorite work. Again, key element of liberalism is you have to feel bad, right? It doesn't matter what you do. They have to, as long as you feel bad doing it. As long as you're wringing your hands, it's okay. As long as you cry after the drone strike, you're right, it's fine. Uh, he would go on to say, I don't think anyone on the health department team or any of our partners enjoy doing this work, but it's something we recognize that has to be done to protect our environment for all of Salt Lake County residents, unquote. In 2019, San Francisco residents tried to prevent the building of a homeless shelter inciting environmental concerns. The Guardian a headline would read, San Francisco, wealthy opponents of new shelter claim homelessness bad for the environment. The article would read, the wealthy San Francisco residents who launched a crowdfunding campaign to block construction of a new homeless shelter in their waterfront neighborhood are employing a new tactic arguing that homeless people are bad for the environment. In a lawsuit filed against the city of San Francisco and the California State Lands Commission, the residents called the project to undergo an environmental review before breaking ground. And you see this time and again, uh, especially of late, that again, it's sort of bad form to say, I don't want homeless people near my house or I don't want homeless people in my area. So you say, oh, they have fires or it's not sanitary. And all that is true. But again, they're going to be doing those same things somewhere else because we haven't actually addressed the fundamental fucking problem. So really what you're saying is just get it out of my neighborhood, get it out of my eyesight. And then again, I don't care about the river 500 meters downstream because that's someone else's problem or the river in another county or the river in another state because no one's talking about actually solving the fundamental problem, which is that we need to give people places to live. And since you mentioned solving the fundamental problem, Adam, that takes us to our third euphemism that is often heard in these discussions, which really has everything to do with where the emphasis is placed. So, for instance, when we hear politicians talk about solving the homelessness crisis, that's not the same thing as people talking about solving the homelessness crisis. Note where the emphasis lands. Yeah, this is a popular rhetorical sleight of hand because it sort of sounds um, unassailable to say, I'm going to solve the homelessness crisis. And when someone says they're going to solve the homelessness crisis, it's really important to understand that three different groups hear three different things. Leftists will hear, oh, I guess we have to end the conditions that cause homelessness. Right. Solving the homelessness crisis. Correct. Conservatives will hear, oh, cops are going to come by and deal with the problem by any means necessary. And the third category, liberals they hear a kind of vague, squishy idea that it's going to, someone's going to come in and clean it, and they don't really want to think too much about how the sausage is made. It's a technocratic solution, right? But there's a solution that doesn't get to the root causes. I don't want to know the details. I don't want to know what happens after the quote-unquote interaction. I just, I sort of want to just kind of go out of the way. Right. Can it be solved, please? Right. Let's fix this. Right. And so Eric Adams then got into trouble because he did another metaphor where he compared homeless people to a cancer. He said in a press conference in spring of last year, quote, you can't put a Band-Aid on a cancerous sore. That is not how you solve the problem. You must remove the cancer and start the healing process. Now, understandably, activists took this to mean that the cancer is the human beings who are homeless. Deputy Executive Director for the Coalition for the Homeless in New York City, Shelley Nort said, quote, it is sickening to hear Mary Adams liken unsheltered homeless people to a cancer. They are human beings. But Adams defenders would say, oh, well, he actually just meant like homelessness itself. The scourge of homelessness is the cancer. Right. Right. And this is the cleverness of this vague liberal language, because you never really have to specify, are you railing against the underlying conditions that create homelessness? Well, of course not. He's, the again, most funded by hedge funds, most funded by real estate, rah-rah capitalist, rah-rah go, you know, go business in New York. So obviously that's not really his criticism. And the analogy we, I would use, this is similar to how people at Davos talk about inequality. 
every like couple years that you know Davos meeting where the elites of the elites go meet in the mountains of Switzerland, and especially after Occupy, there would be all these headlines. So a- ABC News two years ago said, "quote Inequality on the top of the agenda at Davos goes right," and it says like inequality is the main concern of the rich. And you'll see this a lot also with the Pentagon and climate change. So there'll be headlines in CBS News that read, Pentagon is, quote, concerned about climate change. But here's what's really important to say. When Eric Adams says he wants to solve the homelessness crisis, or when Davos says that their number one priority is inequality, or when the Pentagon says their number one concern is climate change, they're not talking about it in the way that you and I talk about it. They're not concerned with solving homelessness in the sense of giving people homes and massively reducing inequality, just as Davos is not concerned about inequality solving inequality in any meaningful sense, they view inequality like terrorism or loose nukes or some other threat, right? They are the kings looking down at the peasants' revolt of 1381 saying, oh, I'm worried about the inequality, wink, wink, which is to say we need to rely on security services to keep these people in line. And just like the Pentagon views climate change as something that is a threat risk, right? Something that can lead to more immigration or can lead to lead to disastrous climate change, which can affect their ability to deploy to a forward position. Or, right. Water wars. Right, exactly. And really what they mean when they worry about climate change is, is building more and shoring up the defenses of existing military bases near the equator. And so it's really important to understand that when someone says we need to solve the homelessness crisis, that can mean very different things to different people, just as dealing with the crime issue, quote unquote, can mean locking up millions of black people, or it can mean dealing with the underlying conditions that create the need for crime in the first place. And the liberal democratic electeds in a lot of these cities are extremely good about always being vague about what they mean. Because if you look at the fine print, especially when it comes to things like advocating for homelessness, you know, quote unquote sweeps, which sounds very anodyne, right? Oh, it's a sweep. Yeah, it's dirty. Just get it out of the way. Right. If you look at the fine print, it's just more cops and harassment. And that's ultimately what you end up getting. And then they'll sometimes say, you know, we're going to do $250 million for more shelters, but shelters, of course, are useless because you can't live in a shelter. That just keeps you not freezing that night, but doesn't actually solve the problem. They're also incredibly unsafe and most people don't want to go there. Yeah. Well, you know, I've, I've lobbied the state to provide more permanent housing and that's fine and that's good, but it's never even remotely sufficient. And the reason we know it's not sufficient is because uh, New York still has the largest homelessness population in the country other than California and Hawaii. This takes us to our fourth and final euphemism that we hear a lot. And this has to do with officials talking about providing people with housing without ever really specifying what those policies would entail or having to follow through on them after the initial press conference. We saw this with the recent Adams press conference from November 29th of this year. He said this, quote, we want all New Yorkers to have access to a safe place to live, and we are working to expand the supply of supportive and low-barrier housing. We're also piloting innovative models to connect people and shelter with the services they need to succeed, including Medicaid, home, and community-based services, which includes mental health care, socialization, and connection to housing, end quote. Now, that alone doesn't sound bad. Those are not bad things. That all sounds great. But what policies are actually put in place to make that a reality rarely come to fruition. Right, because no one ever follows up on it. You know, if I announce a policy that I'm going to ramp up going after, quote unquote, open our drug use, which is to say just sending in cops to enforce drug laws. If I say I'm going to start doing sweeps and cleanups and these kind of militaristic sounding, I'm going to come and sort of remove them. That kind of sounds bad. And anyone with half a brain cell and half a heart will say, well, okay, well, obviously they're just going to come back because they're homeless. 
So you have to kind of vaguely gesture towards more housing, but you're never really held to these commitments. As long as it sort of remains vague and you're working on it, mm -hmm. there's this long process for money. That is always kind of a mysterious process without any concrete results. But the carceral element, well, that we have the money for. The police are well-funded. Well, right, because the violence on the front end is promised and enacted. The follow-through, the next step is mentioned, but rarely followed through on. Yeah, so in February of this year, there was a push poll in the Washington Post that really is kind of a one-on-one manufacturing consent for cruel policies. The headline read, quote, majority of DC residents support clearing of homeless encampments, post poll finds. So this is one of these great, like, we're not doing, we're only doing this evil thing because the people want it. That's not what the poll said. Uh, the actual poll asked respondents if they support, quote, shutting down tent encampments if some have been offered one-year housing voucher for the city. Note the weasel word, some, it's doing a lot of work here. And 53% of residents agreed with that statement. But that's not what the headline said. The headline didn't say majority of DC residents support clearing homeless encampments if the city provides people housing for at least a year. Or rather, majority of DC residents support providing a year of housing to the homeless, right? Like you could frame it a completely different way, but they choose to remove the if and only keep the clearing of the encampments. So as local DC activist, Jesse Rabinowitz notes, the DC deputy mayor of health and human services acknowledged that half of those aren't even, weren't even offered housing vouchers. And that's just based on their own probably juiced up numbers. And so the question really should have said, quote, knowing that half of those evicted will not be offered housing, do you support shutting down 10 encampments? Which of course would solicit a totally different answer. And this is how it works. You always keep the promise of housing vague, you gesture to it, you kind of front load it because we know that morally people don't want to harass, well, not most people, fascists don't give a shit, right wingers really probably don't really care, but a lot of liberals, a lot of progressives, a lot of maybe even independent sort of morally sound people, they don't want to harass and toss the possessions of and displace homeless people if there's nowhere for them to go. And since we know, again, by definition, there's not sufficient housing for these people. Otherwise, the vast, vast majority of them would be in it. Please don't message me being like, some people choose to be homeless. Yeah, okay, that's like less than 1%. So we're not talking about that. If you choose to be homeless because of some uh, lifestyle choice or ideological primitivist position, that's fine, but that's not what we're talking about. Uh, but most people, if they had a safe, secure home, they would choose it. And we all know that to be true because those that have that option readily take it. That doesn't exist. And so what you have to do is you have to say, Okay, we're going to do this thing we've always done, which is just sending the police to go harass these fucking people. But that seems a little bit dicey morally. So we're don't worry. We're also kind of working on housing, sort of. You saw this with the initial subway sweeps of Eric Adams in, in February and March of, of this year, where he'd always say, oh, well, we're offering them shelter. And then if you look at their own data, less than 2% of people would take the shelter. And again, a shelter is not a home, right? A shelter is just a stopgap. Mm -hmm. And the reason is because the same, you know, the very next day, the Daily News and the New York Post report how the, the shelters are full of cockroaches. They're full of uh, disease. There's zero COVID protocols. Uh, people are broken up with families. People are uh, broken up with pets. There's a lot of abstinence only drug arrangements. They're not places that people can live with comfort, safety, and security. So by definition, for most people, the streets are actually safer and more comfortable for than the shelter system. But so long as it remains this kind of you know moral failing on the part of individuals, because that's the way the mayor framed it. The mayor said, oh, well, 98% of people rejected shelter, right? It sort of puts the onus on them. This is the kind of great PR thing you do. Right. That's why you can force hospitalization or force, quote unquote, intervention, right? Because, hey, you know, they won't even accept it if it's there. Uh-huh. And that's what Eric Adams and other liberal mayors keep repeating. But that's not true at all, which we'll get into with our guests. 
Yes, to talk about this more, we're now going to be joined by Henna Khan, criminal defense attorney, litigator, and now an advisor at the Wren Collective. She previously served as a staff attorney for the Neighborhood Defender Service of Harlem. Hannah's going to join us in just a moment. Stay with us. We are joined now by Henna Khan. Henna, thank you so much for joining us today on Citations Needed. Thanks so much for having me. So let's begin by talking about the mental health plan that Eric Adams, Mayor Eric Adams of New York, has recently rolled out as a kind of an entry point into this broader topic. You and your colleagues argue that the language that he's employing, the language of alternatives to systems of incarceration and control in a way that is sort of co-opting their nominal or original intent. So I kind of want to begin by talking about what Eric, because there's been some confusion on this. I know that sometimes in some progressive circles, people are kind of, well, what is it? What are the kind of, how is this going to play out in reality versus what it looks like on paper? Can you sort of lay out what the plan is, how it's being presented, and what are some of the sort of gaps in the rhetoric versus how this will manifest in reality? Right. So the actual plan directs police and other first responders to detain anyone who appears to be mentally ill and displays an inability to meet basic living needs. Those are quotes. And finally, is conducting themselves in a manner likely to result in serious harm of self to others even if they pose no risk of harm to other people. So what that means is that municipal employees, first responders, have the power to transport homeless people to psychiatric hospitals involuntarily for psychiatric evaluation, whether or not they're violent. Eric Adams also said that he would enhance training for NYPD officers and other responders who are identifying people who appear to be unable to meet their basic needs. And he would provide a hotline for police officers to speak with clinicians. Even if this were a good idea, which it's absolutely not, it's fictional because there aren't enough psychiatric beds available. Mm -hmm. Additionally, there are a lot of other issues with it, but One of the first things I'll mention is that it would require changing the Medicaid reimbursement rates for psychiatric beds, which needs federal approval. So this policy has a lot of problems. Mm -hmm. And advocates are rightfully very upset about it because it is really giving police more power to address issues where people are in crisis and people need a therapeutic response. You know, I think part of this and why we're excited to talk to you today, Hannah, is because part of what is so sinister about what we've been hearing about this so-called mental health plan is the framing up of how it has been presented, let alone that it was announced on, of all days, Giving Tuesday, as if this is somehow a benevolent plan. But um, more than that, there's this idea that automatically equates homelessness with crime and homelessness with mental health issues. Can you talk about how basically this new policy, which really I think, as we talked about earlier in the show, has so much to do with disappearing undesirables from the streets, from the view of folks who may have money to, uh, you know, buy up nicer real estate. Like, what is this idea of disappearing of part of our community, yet equating that with something that will have a positive effect on, say, crime rates, or that this is somehow helping people rather than doing the same thing that, say, destroying homeless encampments was doing, which is just, you know, out of sight, out of minding. Right. So it's important to note that, first, Adams's recent rhetoric 
is a shift from the way that he previously spoke about people who are struggling with mental illness. He previously has said that they are largely responsible for an increase in crime in the subway, even though most homeless people and people with mental health issues are not violent. And most crimes are not committed by people who are unsheltered or who have mental health issues. And This particular policy directive is interesting because it felt like the most egregious example among many of how healing-centered language is being co-opted to support harmful policy. Mm -hmm. Politicians all the time say, we're pushing for more incarceration or policing to help victims. But then they don't actually introduce policies that help victims, like investment policies or prevention policies. We're in this moment where we're coming out of the pandemic People have suffered massively. They're looking for healing. Wellness is a multi-billion dollar industry, and people are having more open conversations about trauma and healing and therapy. And what Adams is doing is he's employing terms designed to engender an empathetic response. So when he first came out during the press conference, he said there are people in danger and in need. He told a few humanizing stories of homeless people. He acknowledged the cycling in and out of hospitals and jails, talking about how they have slipped through the cracks, acknowledging the suffering that occurs and the need to change the culture. And he said, we have a moral obligation to help them. Mm. He focused on treatment and recovery, needing deeper action, more intensive engagement, focusing on action, care, and compassion. So you're listening to this and you're like, wow, okay, yes, you know, this is great. Mm -hmm. But What he's actually doing is he's really pushing the involuntary commitment of people in an already very broken system that cannot even handle the people that are coming in currently. And he's saying what we need to do is we need to actually allow for police and other first responders to make this determination of this person not being able to meet their basic needs, so now they need to be committed, and we shouldn't release them. The language makes us think that the mayor is invested in truly helping our most vulnerable New Yorkers in a meaningful and effective way. And yet, he's not actually responding to the actual needs of homeless and unhoused people or those suffering from mental health conditions. Instead, he's advocating for a violent and coercive policy that's very vague and has great potential for abuse. Yeah, so let's get into brass tacks here because I think some people may be confused about what exactly a lot of this entails. Now, I want to sort of be generous and start from the premise that a lot of people have substance abuse issues which can compound pre-existing or create in some ways mental health issues that do manifest as what we would perceive as either being violent or threatening. I think it would be disingenuous to say that people haven't all experienced that, right? I, I got off the plane in JFK to visit. I used to live in New York to visit some friends earlier this summer. And like, literally I walked in, I was waiting for the subway and I was accosted by a home. Like that happens. Someone is visibly homeless. Like that happens. Everyone knows it happens. Anyone who's dealt with anyone with an acute substance abuse issue that has manifested as what we would call paranoia can exhibit what we would call erratic or unpredictable behavior. Although I think it's not as violent as oftentimes people think it is, but it has the perception of that. Like that's the reality that people see. Whether or not it's gotten worse, we can debate, but that is something that a lot of people see in cities. And their reaction to that, their human reaction, which is I think where we come in and we sort of disagree with the solution, right? Even if you sort of accept the premise that this is increasing and is creating violence or trauma for the quote unquote victims, you can look at that and say, okay, there's two ways of handling this. There's two ways of responding on a fundamental level, which is A, 
seeing this happen and say, why is this person not in jail? Or B, seeing this person and saying, holy shit, what has society done to fail this person? And it seems like the easy, cheap, obvious demagogic solution is A, right? To say, if there's this person exhibiting some kind of mental health issue that's manifested as violence or making me uncomfortable or harassing me, sexually harassing me, whatever it is, that this is a moral failing on the part of an individual requiring a carceral response versus what are the systems in place, which I think Red Collective and, and people you work with would obviously agree, has just colossally failed people. And when you have a hammer, everything looks like a nail, right? And so in our society, to show you take something seriously, you have to turn it into a crime. You have to involve the police. That's sort of how you put on your serious face, right? To say you take it seriously. The only grammar for empathy we have in our society is incarceration. And what I see here is this is just another sort of form of that where it says, okay, clearly something's not working in a lot of urban areas. Housing is extremely expensive. The social safety net is failing. There's not enough free public housing. There's not even enough affordable housing. Forget free. There is not enough mental health support. There's not a social safety net that is remotely catching the people in our society that are at the bottom rung. And so that's all too messy and expensive and difficult and requires high taxes and tough trade-offs. So we're just going to sort of do what we've always done, which is just put surplus populations behind bars and rotate them through behind bars. And that's really, I think, what I find and what I think y'all find so cynical about this whole thing is it's sort of taking a real social problem, a real social ill and doing what we always do, which is default to cops in cages. And I want to comment, if you can, on an op-ed written by Representative Ron Kim, uh, assembly uh, person and a representative in, in New York State uh, legislator who wrote this, you know, he's sort of a, he has a sort of reputation as being progressive. He took on Cuomo and he sort of got behind this and supported this and seems to be like their kind of progressive face to this program. And he came out and said, this is not police-led. There's kind of two sides to the liberal state, right? There's the carceral state that we all progressives hate, but then there's the welfare state we think is good. And as long as we sort of put the progressive state runs blocking for the running back that is the carceral state, <laughs> they can kind of get away with anything. And he said, oh, the police are trained. So I want to sort of talk about how this kind of concern with downplaying the role of police is that reality? Because from what I've read is that when the rubber hits the road, this is just police, but police bracketed by like two guys with clipboards and polo shirts. Can we talk about to the extent to which this is police-led? Is Kim's statement, this is not police-led, true? And secondarily, he mentions, oh, no, these aren't normal police. They're going to be trained, which if anyone knows anything about police training, knows that's like a total joke of a statement because they're just trained by other police and it's like a weak program. Can we talk about what that training supposedly looks like and to what extent this is police-led? Yeah, that's a great question. I mean, at this point, it's still unclear. And the NYPD themselves has stated that they're in the process of aligning their policy guidance and training in conformance with the mayor's directive. So I think that this directive, it hasn't really been thought out. And right now, the training that exists is crisis intervention team training, which was paused during the pandemic. And to date, I believe less than half of New York City officers have gone through the four-day training, which is clearly not enough. Four-day training? It's a four-day training. So that's basically not a training. Exactly. <laughs> I mean, not that it would matter anyway, really, because again, this, the guy with the Punisher tattoo and the barbed wire, you know, who runs the Blue Lives Matter Facebook group, I don't think like a week of training is going to turn him into a bleeding heart humanitarian. Call me cynical. Right. And it'll take months to properly train officers. And as you all know, the NYPD has already been criticized for 
not being able to ramp up their training for different programs, particularly the crisis intervention team trainings. And, you know, it also just, you know, you wonder, police are trained to look for crime. Police are armed. They're trained to use force. They are trained to ensure compliance. And they are grossly unprepared to deal with people who are struggling in severe mental health crisis. And the data shows that police contact actually escalates issues where someone is experiencing a crisis. Just their presence escalates a situation because they are uniformed, they're armed, it's a hostile situation. So I'm I'm not very hopeful that even with the training, this is going to be helpful to people who need help. I mean, one of the things that I'm struck by here is the kind of criminalization of of just not having anywhere to go or even sometimes more specifically choosing not to go to, say, a shelter, which we now know our shelters are incredibly dangerous. Uh, a lot of unhoused people choose not to do that. And I think forced hospitalization is kind of a similar thing. I mean, homeless people are far more often victims of crime than perpetrators of crime. And yet, in not only you know official statements, but certainly media surrounding crime reporting, surrounding the so-called surge in crime, skyrocketing crime rates, which, you know, incidentally, I should point out that so much of this rampant mental health issues and homelessness issues that are often talked about when it comes to New York City are seen on the New York City subways. And yet ridership has gone up on subways. And I should also note that the odds of being the victim of a crime while riding on either a, a bus in the city or subway. This year so far, the data says the odds are 1.62 out of 1 million. And so I guess my question is, how much do you think the perception of danger, perception of threat is then used to sell policies like this? How does the media kind of tell those stories, make that even more embedded in our public perception, and then transfer this kind of crime story into, as you said, this like laundering of bad policy through language using healing and trauma health language to make it somehow more palatable? Yeah, I mean, I think it has a great effect on people really accepting this, you know, even with Representative Ron Kim. I think people want solutions. I don't think that they necessarily have the imagination to figure out what that actually looks like. Mm -hmm. And that's why the media is so important. Amongst the criminal justice reform movement and you know, mental health advocates and public health approaches, there are solutions that work. It's just that those solutions don't get the attention that's needed. Mm -hmm. And the media has really fueled a lot of the fear around crime. And when you do see someone on the subway who's having a hard time or you experience something, then of course you're going to have that fear and it's real and we do need solutions. But when we center policies that rely on police and our traditional tough-on-crime policies that 
don't really work, we have a problem, you know, and we're not going to fix it by going back to the same thing that we've always done. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So I want to talk a little bit about that because we spent the top of the show talking about is that there's a long history of kind of liberal packaging of the same old carceral bullshit because it's all about the market you're kind of playing to. Again, if this is largely conservative or Republican, they don't really run through the motions to kind of do the bleeding heart humanitarian stuff. Maybe a little bit, right? I mean, you know, here and there, you can sort of see it. But there isn't a need to sort of package this as something new and different. That's I think that's what made Representative Kim's op-ed so, I don't say amusing to me, but like I've seen every five years, they're like, oh, this police department's different. And it's like, oh, how? <laughs> you know, it's the same organization <laughs> as it was before. This time it's different as sort of the standard liberal line, right? This war is different. This police force is different. It's not like the other bad things in the past. And of course, you know, Eric Garner was, that was what, seven, eight years ago. And, and suddenly, oh, no, the MOPD is different. If you can, I want to do a little service journalism here. For the discerning and skeptical listener, what are some of the red flags you look for when people do these policy announcements? Aside from the fact that Eric Adams is just overtly the most pro-cop mayor, uh, well, they're all pro-cop mayors, but even more so- He's really pro-cop. <laughs> right. Right. Sort of copy McReal Estate. I mean, he courted and sought out the police union. He raised more money from real estate than anyone. And of course, the police are just an arm of real estate. So he's very much pro-cop. Yeah. Was literally a police captain. Was Well, yeah, but he claims he was doing a Serpico routine, but I think that's a little dubious. And aside from that kind of warranted skepticism of who's actually making the policy, what are some of the, for someone who's maybe in Portland or San Francisco or LA or, you know, Miami or in these kind of liberal cities that are pushing more carceral policies, I know in Miami, there was a vote in the city council to actually build like basically an island about homeless people. And they made that seem like it was some kind of retreat club med for homeless people. What would you say are some of the red flags to look for? Is it simply a matter of, wow, is this going to be run by the police or is this like a legitimate health policy? You know, the fact that Adams was bracketed by 10 police officers when he announced the plan didn't really, wasn't very reassuring. But can you sort of tell the listener what those red flags are and what really, if you were the mayor tomorrow, what would your policy look like aside from obviously more robust uh, social solutions? Right. I mean, there are several things that we look at when we're trying to figure out if a policy is good or bad. And the first thing we ask is, is it net widening or net narrowing? And does it actually solve anything or is it skirting around the problem with feel-good words? So for example, with probation reform, we need it, but we wouldn't support a policy that makes probation go from five years for misdemeanors to three years. Yes, it's not net widening, but it's not something to be celebrated. So we want to make sure that it's actually having an impact. You look at the stated objective of a policy and you look at whether or not it sets out to meaningfully accomplish that goal. And one of the main questions we ask is, who is being impacted? Another question is, is the policy so vague that you could drive a truck through it? With Adam's proposal, it's very vague. It leaves a lot of discretion to the responder to determine whether someone is appears to be mentally ill, does it appear that they can't meet their basic living needs, how they're conducting themselves, very subjective terms. And one of the red flags is, well, one thing we ask is whether the policy is backed by evidence. So what does the data say about the efficacy of a policy? Has it actually been proven to help? Does it actually get at the problem that it's trying to solve? So with Adams's directive, there are studies on forced commitment, and they have found that the process wasn't more effective than voluntary care. So his 
policy is not backed by evidence. And we also look at the collateral consequences of the policy. We want to know what the harms are. Can it potentially create more harm or trauma or distrust of the system? And I think that's one of the things that we really need to talk about is that people who are involuntarily committed are more likely to harm themselves, including attempted suicide, and they're less likely to trust institutions and seek help when they need it in the future. So that's one of the really big ones that this policy needs to address because if we're having police at the forefront or first responders, involuntary committing people, what's going to happen when they are ultimately released? And are they actually going to want to get the help that they need? Or are they just going to say, I don't trust the system. I'm going to stay out on the street. I don't need help because I was so harmed by what happened to me. Yeah, because I think that's where there's some confusion. I think there's the average person says, okay, the police or some mysterious force just takes this person out of the way, which of course is where the, which is the alpha and omega of this whole policy, which is just get it out of the way. Just like the sort of sweeps, quote unquote, where three days later, there's another camp set up because the same people just came back because there's no shelters, right? It's, but it's sort of, you need to look busy, right? Except all their stuff was destroyed, including oftentimes like their ID that makes it even harder for them to get public services. In God forbid they had drugs on them, then they're in jail, right? But there's this capital D, capital S, do somethingism, And so much of our politics is about doing something. And the, well, rather the appearance of doing something, right? Whether or not you do something is academic. And I think that when people see, okay, well, the Eric Adams is doing something, right? He's standing up on a podium and there's a bunch of people. There's a bunch of like logos. I think one of them is the fire department. The other one's health service. It sort of seems important, right? You need to look like you're, like you're a kick-ass and taking names, right? New sheriff in town, right? And... They think that, okay, we take this person to a mental health facility, and that's kind of where this object permanence ends for the average person. They sort of say, okay, they're going to this mysterious place. Maybe, I guess it's like a Betty Ford clinic. Can you sort of pick up there and explain why that reasoning's faulty? You touched on it a second ago, but I want to kind of expand on, there's no real strategy to actually give people substantive care because as we talked about a lot on this episode and other episodes, without permanent stable housing mental health care and drug treatment care have a very, 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 very high failure rate. So either way, we still circle back to the issue of housing. So can you sort of comment on this mysterious place that people go and explain what happens when they disappear from people's eyesight? Right. So, you know, these are all Band-Aid solutions that are very short-term solutions that I wouldn't even call solutions because they don't work, right? So we already have a shortage of hospital beds in New York City. And Adams wants more people to be picked up and held in hospitals. Currently, the law is that you can only hold people for 72 hours and then they have to be released. He wants to extend that time. But you can't keep people in hospitals indefinitely. It also just doesn't work at treating the actual problem. And so eventually they have to be released. We have a massive shortage of quality outpatient care we don't have supportive housing. And it's interesting because people think that entering the system through a psychiatric facility is the way to go through this process of getting supportive housing. But it actually is much more stabilizing for someone who has mental illness to get housing first, as you were saying. It's deeply stabilizing. And it shouldn't be that hard for us to understand that in order to feel safe, first you need to have a place to lay your head 
that feels safe. And, you know, a lot of people say, well, there are shelters that exist. Why don't they just go into the shelters? Shelters are extremely violent. They're extremely unsafe. People are regularly assaulted there. The conditions are really bad. They're dirty. They're awful. And people would rather put themselves at risk of all kinds of things happening to them, sleeping on the subway, sleeping on the street, than be in shelters. So what we need to do is invest in adequate housing. And so in Milwaukee, they implemented housing first to reduce reentry into jail. They found that after a year of service delivery, municipal violations decreased by 82%, and the number of people experiencing homelessness decreased significantly as well. And so there are solutions that work. And housing, surprisingly for some people, is actually cheaper than a lot of these emergency responses. We've spent billions of dollars on emergency responses similar to Adams's plan, and it hasn't helped. So housing is actually possible and it works. I was a public defender during the pandemic. And at the very beginning of the pandemic, when people were being released from jail, they were being given hotel rooms by the city during the stay-at-home order. And during that time, we saw a sharp decrease in arrests. That can be attributed to a number of different things. But anecdotally, I know that many of my clients really benefited from having a room of their own with a bathroom of their own. They were able to get the treatment they needed. They were able to get the support that they needed. Clinicians were able to reach them easily. So when we actually give people a stable place to live, we see that they're actually able to access the necessary supports that are going to help them. Yeah. And of course, the as we mentioned at the top of the show, of course, if you give people free housing during which we did to some extent with UI and stimulus during COVID, you create upward pressure on wages and give labor power too much power because precarity is what drives low wages. So that's obviously not one of the solutions we can have. So therefore, you, you have to have cops in cages. Yeah, I think this gets to what you were saying about, you know, where your red flags kind of come in, how to assess what we're hearing in terms of these policies and how all too often, not only are, say, root causes of these issues obscured, but oftentimes they're inverted, right? You know, I mean, as you were just saying, Hannah, like the idea that homelessness or mental illness is seen as a moral failing that one needs to make it through in some kind of way that obviously will include some sort of touch of the carceral system, make it through to a deservingness to then get you know, assisted living or, you know, affordable housing, as opposed to the inverse of that, right? Which you're saying that, no, the root causes so often are these fundamental aspects of uh, health and safety and security against this idea of precarity and uh, danger, the idea that if you have a place to live, so much can and should and will follow from that. How does the idea of doing that kind of sleight of hand inversion of root causes, right? That you need the hospitalization, you need the incarceration before you can get to the deservingness of a home or of certain services. How does that inversion just kind of, you know, allow for more carceral solutions where there always seems to be plenty of budget, yet addressing the root causes is never really an option? 
Right. Well, I mean, they're distractions. They make people think that the solutions are more institutionalization, more police intervention, because they're presented as the solution. So that's why we continue to rely on law enforcement when we think about public safety, because we're always focusing on emergency responses while not addressing the underlying problem. But at the same time, we know what works, and that's a public health approach that deals with the problem holistically. You know, we've talked about decent quality housing. We've talked about stabilizing people with mental health conditions, helping them maintain their social support systems. There were some housing researchers in L.A., and they found that while poverty and an inability to pay for housing are precipitating causes for entering homelessness— Over time, social disconnection and legal, medical, and behavioral health problems emerge as the barriers to escaping homelessness. So we really need to think about all of the consequences of institutionalizing people and taking them away from their support systems. We need to think about what is happening when we're saying we need to put people in a psychiatric ward indefinitely and then release them back into the community. And we need to think about the harms that flow from that and the costs that flow from that as well. You know, and I've said this before, but providing supportive and affordable housing is much cheaper than relying on institutionalization of people or relying on emergency shelters. We need to focus on funding programs that are less intrusive. So for example, homeless drop-in centers, mental health urgent care centers, more outreach workers who are trained mental health professionals that can provide therapeutic responses rather than a law and order response that is coercive in nature. The plan that Adams is putting forth isn't going to work. Hospitals are at capacity. People are going to be sent back into the streets. And without investing in things that actually work, that are proven to work, that are backed by evidence, we're not going to see a solution. So while his plan sounds great to someone who doesn't really know that much about these issues, it once again is a Band-Aid approach. And one of the things that we don't really think about is Is there an infrastructure to support the policies that we're putting forward? So can they actually be carried out? This policy, really untenable. The city mental health providers are underfunded and understaffed. There's a chronic bed shortage. The current system is already so stressed that it can't provide adequate care for people. And at this point, we don't even know what will happen upon discharge. So... There are so many unknowns with what he's saying. And when we do have policy directives, we need to really see where is the funding going? Where is the money going? Budgets reveal values. And Eric Adams, he's saying that he cares for people who are struggling with mental health issues, but the Department of Health and Mental Hygiene saw a budget reduction of 29%. The Department of Homeless Services saw a 15% reduction from previous years in this year's budget. So if he truly wanted to provide compassionate, comprehensive care for New Yorkers experiencing mental illness or homeless New Yorkers, his budget would reflect that. And, you know, I think one of the last things was, does this seem legal? His policy violates civil rights. It relies on an expanded interpretation of New York's mental health laws, and he is likely to face 
lawsuits if this plan moves forward. To the extent that one actually cares about the law, this is uh, basically just kind of kidnapping people based on ad hoc assumptions of cops from Long Island. Yeah, it's always interesting how uh, law and order policies really never really care much about the law. Hannah, this has been so great. Thank you so much for talking this through with us. We've been speaking with Hannah Khan, criminal defense attorney litigator, and now an advisor at the Wren Collective. She previously served as a staff attorney for the Neighborhood Defender Service of Harlem. Hannah, again, thank you so much for joining us today on Citations Needed. Thank you. Yeah, I think um, this whole idea that you're going to somehow treat mental illness by locking people in a hospital for a couple of days, I do think you can treat like acute episodes. Like if someone is having a manic episode or is delusional or paranoid, like, and they're violent. Sure. And that the problem is I think they've taken that like basic intuitive idea. This policy is not bad because we're anti-hospital or anti-mental health services, right? Oh, no, 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 of course. <laughs> but I think they've taken the sort of basic idea that like, yeah, if someone's like yelling at people and stabbing, you know, yeah, clearly they need some kind of medical intervention. Sure. sure. Like, obviously. And they've expanded that to like, oh, if you're homeless, by definition, you're crazy. Exactly. Uh, exactly. I mean, it's not quite that, but it's sort of like that. And it's such a basic inversion of how we should be viewing this issue. Like, again, it's sort of hip to say, for liberals to say, addiction is a disease or mental health issues is a disease. It's not a moral failing. But if somebody has cancer, let's say I have pancreatic cancer, what do you think my survival rate is if I'm living on the streets versus having a safe and secure home if I have to treat cancer? Like, just run the numbers. What do you think? How much do you think that increases the likelihood of you surviving that particular disease? And it's the same thing with any kind of mental health issue or any kind of substance issue where, by definition, if you have a secure, private, stable, comfortable home, you're far more likely to, quote unquote, get better, to improve to the extent that's possible. And if you don't improve, what's the great tragedy we've accomplished as a society? Oh, no, you've given someone a hot meal and a warm place to stay for something and they didn't earn it. But as we talked about earlier, of course, and she, you know, God bless our guests, she kept saying it's, you know, it's cheaper to actually house people. And again, not to be the guy in the Onion article with the bong saying what the real crime is, but like, it's not cheaper in the long term. And the capital class knows that because if you provide people free housing without conditions or without being economically precarious, right? If you provide that floor, that social safety net floor, not to mix metaphors here, then you disincentivize low wage workers to work for shitty wages. And we saw little mini versions of this during COVID. It's one of the reasons labor power got so much stronger and wages shot up because there was some social safety net and they can't permit that. There was a tiny bit less precarity during a massive economic and health crisis. Right, and so the one actual thing that actually works to prevent the sort of wacky homeless crazy guy on the subway going after you, right? The sort of thing everybody's talking about, everybody wants this trope. We've taken that off the table as an option as a society because it would require a fundamental rearrangement of workers and capital. And that is why when people say, well, I, you know, this professor from University of Pennsylvania, this professor from University of New Mexico, you know, <laughs> University of New Mexico and this, that, they all came up with all this data. We've studied this to death that shows providing people income and stable housing is the most profoundly elegant way of reducing, not eliminating, but reducing crime, reducing violent interactions with people who with mental health issues or other substance issues, whatever that is, both against them and against others. The most efficient way of doing that is to provide people with income and housing for free. It's actually much, much cheaper mm -hmm. 
than putting people in jail or forcing them in the hospitals. But that is looking at the wrong rubric. And again, hate to be the guy, but that's because they cannot permit that. The lack of precarity winds up being more dangerous. Correct. Correct. To those in power. Correct. And that's the fundamental problem is that the solution that actually works, which is a robust, aggressive, hundred, two hundred billion dollar housing program that actually houses people and provides them with income is simply not an option because it'll result in too much labor power and then the capital will cause inflation to punish the liberal class for providing too much to people. Well, Merry Christmas, everyone. (laughs) That will do it for this episode and this calendar year of citations needed. Thank you all so much for listening to us throughout 2022. We cannot thank you enough. We are in the middle of our sixth season. We will be back in January. We're going to take a little break and then we will be back in the new year with brand new episodes of Citations Needed. But until then, we cannot thank you enough for listening to the show and want to wish you all, of course, very happy holidays. Yes. uh, Happy Hanukkah. Merry Christmas. Whichever other you celebrate, I don't want to be too sectarian here. Go down the rabbit hole. Again, we're very grateful for your support. And um, we don't want to be totally dreary here. And so in the spirit of the holidays, we thought we would leave you with some organizations that are doing non-carceral homeless work. I know the show has tended to be kind of bleak, but especially in the holiday season, we want you to know that there are things we can do and people are doing all over the country to push back against these forces and to try to provide a humanizing alternative to the cops and cages approach. Yes, we know that we talk about tough stuff on Citations Needed a lot. There is not often a lot of hope and cheer, but you know we do want to leave you as the kind of reformed Scrooge at the end of this episode and at the end of this year with the names of some really good organizations doing vital work that Citations Needed is giving to this month as well. In Chicago, there's the Chicago Coalition for the Homeless, which you can find at chicagohomeless.org. Here in New York, there's the group Vocal. Uh, which you can find at vocal-ny.org and Neighbors Together at neighborstogether.org. There are also, of course, many mutual aid organizations doing phenomenal work. You can find those organized through mutualaid.nyc, but you can also look up local groups where you are and give there, of course. So give to those or others if you can. Share organizations that you think are great with other listeners, with your friends and family. Let's make sure that as many people can have the best holidays that they possibly can. But that will do it for this episode and for 2022 of Citations Needed. Thank you all again for listening. Of course, you can follow the show on Twitter at CitationsPod, Facebook, Citations Needed, and become a supporter of our show if you care to through patreon.com slash podcast. All your support through Patreon is incredibly appreciated as we are 100% listener funded. And as always, a very special holiday shout out goes to our critic level supporters on Patreon. They include Chris Sarah, Dash X, Ben Lazar, Joe Schmo, James and Michaela, Greg Westney, Drew Johnson, Max Belanger, David Bettner, Brendan O'Connor, Ultra Miraculous, Zappo, Sturm Wyvern, Darren Brady, Bart DeCourcy, Ra, Mr. Honeycrisp, Justin Harper, Max Wilsey, Blake Bunell, Zenia Zidvornik, Brendan Hines, Doc Reitzel, Philip Moss, Rulos Bar, Brad Hayward, Zach Cathcart, Lorenzo Mitchell, Eric Knight, Morgan Green Hopkins, Ed Zitron, Corporate Zombie, Joseph Erickson, Eric Joyner, Buzz Among Us, Stinky Pete, DL Singfield, J.M. Geralt, Chris Vincent, Nigel Kirby, Scott Roth, Porter Schutz, Zachary Henson, Josh Durlam, Joe Wengert, Steely Dan Halen, Douglas, Danger Manley, Green New Neil, Trasdat, Brickshop Audio, Supple Old Man, Natika Reddy, David McMurray, MSP, William Rush, Jason Eason, Shockfist, Weed Lore, Backup Scare, and of course, Computer Scare. I am Nima Shirazi. I'm Adam Johnson. 
Thank you for listening again to Citations Needed. Our senior producer is Florence Burrow Adams. Producer is Julianne Tweeten. Production assistant is Trenda Lightburn. Newsletter by Marco Cardellano. Transcriptions are by Morgan McCasin. The music is by Granddaddy. Merry Christmas. Happy New Year. We'll catch you next year. <laughs>